We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Hi, and welcome to We Saved You a Seat. This week, we have a special guest, and his name is Jeff Roby. Jeff is actually the, the board president of our Oklahoma Family Network, and he has such a great heart for um, the men and fathers and those who have walked a, a difficult path of NICU as well as receiving a diagnosis and then having a baby during COVID. He's lived some of the hard and he he shares with us today part of that journey. Jeff is the father to two beautiful girls and has a beautiful wife, Ashley, who is a great support to him as well. So I look forward to you hearing Jeff's journey. So Jeff, why don't you just, just share with us a little bit? Thank you, Tamara, for having me. Um, so my journey started six years ago, roughly. <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. Um, my wife uh, went into preterm labor. She was six months along in the hospital for 10 days. I actually set up my office in her hospital room so I could do work from her room. And we had a library and we had a garden with <laughs> with all the plants. So we we tried to make it as homey as we could and because we figured that we would be in there for quite a while so fast forward 10 days it was only 10 days great my daughter Graceland was born she was born at 27 weeks she weighed two pounds and three ounces from my perspective on that i was absolutely terrified absolutely terrified to see a baby come out and she didn't cry and they rushed her off to, um, you know, put tubes down her throat and, and everything else to help her breathe. And, and it was just, it was very, very scary, as you can imagine. Got to see her a little bit later. I actually went with Gracelyn and the nurses and left my wife on the operating table. And uh, I went with her just to see if she was okay. And, you know, and she was. She was doing very well. Her color was very good, uh, which I was so happy about. Uh, and then it was a few hours later, we both went in to see her and it was just, just shocking to see, you know, your baby in there. <clears throat> very, very small, you know, with tubes in her, you know, tubes in her and needles in her and everything else. It's just, <clears throat> it's very, very scary and very hard. As you can tell, I still relive it. <laughs> she was born in April. So around this time, uh, I, I do still feel uh, a lot of that pain, guilt, uh, every emotion that you can imagine. So every year around this time, I, I actually relive it. So she was in the NICU for 71 days. That it's, I can't even describe it because from a dad's perspective, well, I shouldn't say for, from dad's from my perspective, I'm assuming that most dads feel like this. You, I wanted to be the strong one for 
my wife and and try to do everything that I could for my wife and and my newborn who was struggling to stay alive. It was just so challenging. I luckily my wife was she was off work for several months. They were really good to her with leave. She was at the hospital every day. Me on the other hand, I at the time I was managing a team with my for my job and I just felt the need to run my team the best that I could, but I also felt the need to be at the hospital as well with my family. And to this day, I still feel very, very guilty that I wasn't at the hospital as much as I could have been. Be Again, because I, I was trying to juggle. And then the sense of losing control, you have no control over anything. That's, that's what the NICU is. You have absolutely no control. You have to give it up. You have to give it up. You just, you have to do what you can to survive. So again, I feel very guilty that I was really at my job a little bit more than I actually wanted to be. The NICU stay was just, it was the only way that I can describe it from my perspective is an, an emotional roller coaster. You have good days. You have bad days. She lost, Grayson lost weight. Uh, then it took her, she got down to a pound and 10 ounces. And I think it took her three weeks just to get back up to her birth weight. She, she had retinopathy twice, which affected her eyes. Of course, she had two blood transfusions. She coded several times. And one time while we were there, we were there, uh, for touch time and changing her diaper and she coded uh, it just again it's just it's so scary and that was very very hard but she got better and she kept getting better she did have a brain bleed but she kept getting better and better and i was it was just very eye opening to see somebody that strong that is so little you know just sit fighting all the whole time fighting for her life, the entire 71 days. So fast forward 71 days and she was released and she weighed four pounds, 12 ounces. And she had a heart monitor because her PDA did not close. So we had to bring her home with a heart monitor. It was, the ride home was pretty intense. I think I white knuckled it the whole, the whole ride home <laughs> from, you know, North side all the way back to Norman. I was just, terrified. It wasn't too long after that, though, that she, we got the diagnosis that she had cerebral palsy due to the brain bleed. And uh, that was a, that was a big blow. I, we didn't know what to expect. The nurses told us, you know, that she may not be able to walk. She may not be able to hear. She may not be able to see, you know, it's just, it, it's just a variety of things that they need to tell you to, to get prepared for. They're, they're trying to help you. And, and they were fantastic. Every one of, every one of her nurses were just fantastic. It takes a special kind of person to do that. They treated Grayson like she, like she was theirs. And then they treated us like we were family. And I think that's, that really helped us out tremendously because only they know what an emotional roller coaster it is. You know, nobody else knows. It's just like, it's just like when you say, somebody says to you, you, you don't know what it's like to be a parent until you have a child. I mean, it's exactly true, but you don't know what having a premature baby is until a micro preemie at that 
until it happens to you. I mean, you just, you have no clue. And then on top of that, uh, on top of that being new parents, you know, and not being able to hold her and not being able to feed her and not being able to love on her. And, you know, you, you have scheduled times, you know, and things of that nature where you can just touch her. So that, that control factor. Yes. Um, talk about that control piece just a little bit in the lack of control of being dad. So a lot of times we have this image of dad being able to hold and take pictures and do all of those wonderful things of, of having a newborn, you know, all those newborn dad things that you get to do. You know, you think you have it kind of mapped out in your head. And when people say that they really didn't think about it, I, I, you know, they, they had to have, because you have, you have it mapped out in your head, like, okay, she's going to be born in three months or, you know, uh, trying to get things prepared for her room, uh, you know, her nursery. Yes. Newborn pics, feeding her, playing with her, holding her, just holding her in general was a big thing to me that, that I just, I, we lost control of. We don't, we didn't have it. Uh, it, it was all about her at that point. So from a dad, yeah, I, it, I think that was the hardest piece for me is that I, I didn't have any control over when to hold her. And funny, the funny story is that kind of went out of the window because when I first held her, I, I was growing a beard and my wife for No Shave November the year before. So my wife liked it and I just, I kept it. So when she was born, I was going to be clean shaven, but obviously that kind of went out the window. Uh, we didn't get to hold her until, physically hold her until a week after she was born. And at that time, you know, they, they tell you uh, it's kangaroo time, kangaroo care, and you have to be, it's skin to skin contact. So that lack of control kind of went out the window because when I first held her, she grabbed my beard and then she fell right to sleep. Hence why I still have a giant beard. It's because of her. And that, you kind of felt that, I did anyway. I felt that peace that, okay, she's going to be, she's going to be okay. You know? I mean, yes, there were still some scary times, of course. But at that, at that time, it's like, I have a little bit back. I have a little bit of something back. Uh, just even for that split second. And it, it, I was very relieved by that. It felt good. Yes. Yes. I'm also curious about the dad guilt uh, that you mentioned earlier. And I know some of it is, you mentioned that it was work-related. Yes. And not being able to fix everything because that's kind of what you're made of is, you know, I went to work and I could fix the things at work, but I couldn't fix the things that were there. So maybe talk okay. about a little bit of that. Sure. Yeah. Me as, as a male, uh, I'm assuming that other dads and males are like this as well, but we are fixers. We try to fix things that, whether it be in our family or job, whatever the case is, that's what we try to do. That's how we try to help and make things better. And with being at work, it did not get my mind off of uh, my family, Graceland being in the NICU at all. I mean, my mind, my brain was always there with them my body just wasn't, it was just at work. Yes, I could, I could do things at work. I could fix things at work, but I really couldn't in the NICU. I, I couldn't do anything, but just be there, which you have to learn to do that. Just, just to be, just to be there and not try to fix things all the time. And being there for Graceland was probably the biggest 
thing because I knew that she knew me by our, you know, like they, they, they know, they know us by our, our smells and they just know who their parents are. Me just being there was, was good enough at the time though. I really didn't, I didn't realize that, but in retrospect, I think that that was probably, probably the best thing that I could do. And that's kind of where the guilt comes in is in retrospect. Yeah. I probably should have been there more and just been still sometimes in this, in this season, you have to be still. Yeah, that is, I think that is a powerful statement. You said, just need to learn to be there and not fix things in the room when it comes to being in the NICU. Yeah. Um, and I think so often we feel like, you know, as a parent in the, having a child that we can't do things, um, being there is, it's the nurses that are doing everything. The nurses are the ones that are doing, you know, the fixing of my, of my baby. And so for me to be there, I'm, in the way, but in all reality, I think that statement you just said was so powerful because us being there, our babies knew that, you know, and for you yep. to be there as dad, Graceland knew that. So yep. that was that being in the room is powerful. Definitely. I, sh I should have been there for my baby, just been there. Simple as that. But you know, you're torn. You're really, it's, it's such a conundrum because you're torn and, and it's not like you're picking your job over your child, but it sounds like that. It kind of sounds like you are. And that's, I think about that all the time. You try to do your best in all areas of life. And, you know, for the mother who has babies at home that she feels guilty about, you know, being with the ones at home versus the ones that are in the NICU at the same time, it, the, the powerful pull between all of it is. And so, yeah, for dads even. Yes. She was on a vent for 36 hours after she was born. And that was it. Uh, so she was, we were very lucky now, she did have cannula the whole time, of course, but, uh, and then, you know, her O2 stat, stats would drop, but uh, she did not have oxygen. She just had the monitor, heart monitor when we brought her home. Okay, so she was a strong girl. She was she strong. Was. Yeah, really fortunate with that. And so walk us through a little bit of that diagnosis of cerebral palsy. Uh, how did that come into play? Did you guys see some stuff? Did you start looking, seeing a neurologist? Kind of some of those follow-up with physicians and appointments and um, physical therapy type stuff. So the nurses set us up with three doctors and they set us up with uh, physical therapy. Uh, and one of, one of the doctors that they set us up with, they set us up with a neurologist and we saw her, I think, a couple of weeks maybe a month after we brought her home and she and the doc the neurologist looked at the scans and uh diagnosed her with cerebral palsy which we we kind of thought that she might they told us um again she could have cerebral palsy she may not be able to walk all that uh and then we were set up with hearts for hearing as well and and an eye appointment so when we brought her home she was averaging five appointments a week and luckily when my wife went back to work, I could work from home for two days a week. And then, so I set up all of her appointments on those two days. I absolutely loved, I, I was very, I love doing it because I'm her dad. I, I just couldn't, I just can't imagine not being able to do that for my child. And I really don't know if it goes back to the guilt part of it, but I, that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to take care of her and I wanted to help her with her challenges, with her disabilities. And, I, you know, I just, I wanted her to get better. And I wanted that to happen. I mean, my wife did as well. 
so the the diagnosis for cerebral palsy was two to two weeks to four weeks from bring bring home I took her my wife met us there I, it was just even though we knew it was heartbreaking because you're actually hearing the diagnosis of a disability uh, a mobile disability and it just my my stomach dropped i just i'm like man she's alive yes i'm glad but it was heartbreaking at the same time because you want of course you want your child to have all the advantages you know that normal children have so that's what popped into my head at first so clearly you have played an active role in grayson's life from the very beginning and being able to go with her to appointments and all of that and now you have this diagnosis what we were fortunate enough that we we set up she started physical therapy the week after we brought her home very very fortunate and that was even before her diagnosis of cerebral palsy and again that was really just for the brain bleed so that early intervention of physical therapy set her on her journey if you will for many things that she had to overcome and she will always have cerebral palsy, of course. She will never not have it. But this, that early intervention played a huge part. And then we actually switched as well. So we started off at one place. And then about seven months later, we switched to another provider. And then they, they actually found some more layers could hinder her in the long run. The first physical therapy place was fantastic. And then we go to another one. And they even find more things, again, that could be hindering, that could have hindered her for life. And, and it just, it magically happened that they were able to help her, especially in the, with the gross motor skills. And yes, she was delayed, but by golly, she started walking at 18 months. So we, I, I was a proud paw that day. So now you have this 18-month-old that's running around and being quite active. And did you see her kind of close that gap developmentally? Is, is she caught up now, I guess? Um, and is she in school? Because you said that was, this all started almost six years ago. So, you know, did you see that developmental gap close? And where is she now with her peers and stuff when it comes to developmental stuff? When she was doing PT, we noticed that she would write with both hands simultaneously so she could color with both hands simultaneously however there were just the fine motor skills we noticed were lacking i was so concerned with her walking and just being mobile uh that you know the fine motor skills really kind of left me you know i just i was so focused on one thing that it it really didn't occur to me so we started uh, occupational therapy and yes, she was quite behind on her fine motor skills in that area. That was when she was about two, I believe, about two years old. So fast forward to when she was four and she started pre-K, she was still doing PT and OT. And then uh, she, now she's on a IEP. She has PT and OT at school. So we transitioned her from her, the therapist that she has known pretty much since she, before she was a year old, to having new therapists at a new school when she started pre-K. And now she's in kindergarten, about to finish kindergarten, and she will always, probably always be on an IEP, and she will probably always have, always need services. Uh, there's just certain things that you know that she can do, and she knows that she can do it, 
but her brain just doesn't allow it. Her brain just doesn't, it misfires and it, it won't let her hand or her whatever do it. it. The gap is closing, yes. She still has a long ways to go though. Why don't you expand upon that IEP and accommodations that they make for her uh, with her IEP, if you don't mind sharing? No, not at all. Um, the IEP setting it up is a bit of a challenge because they're, they look at different things. She had to have a psyche valve uh, and, and things of that nature. Just her cerebral palsy diagnosis alone, she automatically qualifies for the IEP. What they do for her is the, the therapists come to her class and take her out of class to do uh, 20 to 30 minutes of uh, therapy uh, once a week, and that's for PT and OT. So uh, I believe on Mondays, she sees her physical therapist, and on Wednesdays, she sees her occupational therapist. So that's how they accommodate her. They come get her. She knows that, hey, it's therapy time. And then they, they take her to a therapy room or outside if it's nice, weather permitting. And then that's when they, they provide their services. Triggering. It's all triggering. You know, I guess it was a couple of years. No, no, it was maybe a 18 months for around the time she started walking. I, man, I was just, just super depressed, burnout if you will, uh, just mental, just a mental overload, just trying to balance everything. It was, it was just very challenging. So I started seeing a counselor and that's the first step really that as a male, you know, the stigma around mental health and being a male and you got to be strong and this and that. And I have a saying, I started a, a saying at, around that time that it's easy, it's easy, but really it's not. That's the whole point behind it. That That's such a blanket statement, but it's easy to overlook things. It's easy to just brush things under the rug. What is a challenge is saying, I need help. I have to have help for me and my family, or I will just completely lose it. So I started seeing a counselor and I've, I have been seeing a counselor now for five years and I'm on my like fourth one. We did couples therapy for quite a while. You just don't know what kind of a strain it puts on your marriage because you, it's, it's a very, very lonely feeling from a dad's standpoint. I know that my wife went through that as well, but from a dad's standpoint, it's a very lonely feeling. And I felt like a single parent and I just did not want to step on my wife's toes and I didn't want to make, make her upset and I didn't want to make her sad. And when, but when in reality, I was the one that was dealing with that, with those issues. So then we, I started seeing a therapist and have been, and a couple years that three years after Grayson was born, we lost our first baby. Then after that, four months later, we lost two twin, we lost twin boys. Then eight months after that, we lost a girl. Then in 2019, we went through fertility treatment for the almost for eight months. And luckily, my wife got pregnant in August of 19, and that we had we had to do everything to keep that baby in inside. So some procedures were done, and she was not coming out unless the doctor said she was coming coming out. So that we made sure of that. So then COVID hits, and uh, all that anxiety, antsiness, 
once again feeling like you absolutely have no control over everything, over anything, came back right when COVID hit. So right when the shutdown happened in like mid-March, my wife was going to give birth a month later. We had we had no idea what to do. Because Graceland is a micro preemie, she is still somewhat immunocompromised. So when she gets sick, she gets sick for several days and not just, you know, a couple of days like a, like a normal child. It has taken everything in me to keep my family safe. Because that is the one thing that I do have control over is that, hey, we're going to be living in our house for God knows how long. If that's what it takes to get to keep you guys safe, then that's what we're going to do. But it's been a, such a challenge with having a newborn as well in, in a pandemic. We were in the hospital for only 28 hours. My wife had a C-section and they released us. 28 hours later, they really didn't even check her for the things that we asked them to. You know, Graceland had a severe uh, lip and tongue tie that we caught after the fact because she wouldn't eat. She was losing weight when we brought her home. Well, this one had the same thing. Uh, our new daughter, her name's Bella. Her name's Arabella Faith. And Arabella means yielding in prayers and, of course, faith, you know. So she had kind of the same challenges that Graceland did. And we just... You know, in a pandemic, you just don't know, you can't do anything. Only one person could take her to the doctor. Uh, Bella had a hard time latching and she still never latched to Ashley. I took it upon myself to have Ashley's number one job was to make milk. And I told her I would take care of everything else. And that's what I've done. And it's been so hard. It has been just, it's been very, very hard not having any help. Um, again, dealing with your mental with my mental state back to the roller coaster ride and it is it has been so triggering for me uh in this past year uh just because of covid everybody somehow it has affected them but to a family who it, who had a baby right after they came out with all of this um and having that pressure trying to make sure that you kept your family safe is is so key so yeah, that had to be super stressful having a baby and just with all those new rules in place and not knowing exactly what's going on. So yeah. I cannot even, cannot even fathom what that was like. Ah. The, going back to the just not knowing, you know, again, once again, you think you have a plan. And if people say they don't really have a plan, they're probably not telling the truth. But in your mind, you kind of have a plan on this is the way that things are going to go. And then once again, this was not the way that things were going to go. So at first it was Graceland being a micro preemie. No newborn pictures, no baby shower, blah, blah, blah. Well, we made sure that we had a baby shower. And granted, it was two weeks before the entire country shut down. So we were fortunate about that. But we didn't get to have any newborn pics made. You know, it's just things like that, that it's like, can anything else not go our way? And that might be a little bit selfish of a selfish thing to say, but it's just like, man, just one hit after another. And then Ashley's mom died two months ago. So, I mean, it's, it's since Graceland has been born, since she's been born, I mean, it, it has just been one thing after another within this season of life. And it's, it is such a challenge to even wrap your head around it.
one of our emphasis with Oklahoma Family Network is really making sure that, you know, moms have the opportunity to breastfeed if they want and, and, and produce the milk and then the tongue tie issue. So can you tell us a little bit about how that was diagnosed? And then you said that Graceland and Arabella both had the tongue tie. So right. how, how was that fixed? And then here we are in a pandemic. So how does that get fixed in the middle of a pandemic? Graceland, when we brought Graceland home, we just noticed that it, it a it was taking her forever to take a bottle and then b she was constantly hungry it seemed like to us um and now maybe she was just in pain i don't i don't know but the big the big thing was it was just taking her so long to feed her we took her to a dentist in oklahoma city the the dentist mentioned that yeah she has a lip and a tongue tie cuz we had we had been wondering and then plus she was losing weight as well. And it's like, okay, well, she can't really afford to lose weight because when we, you know, when we brought her home, she weighed less than five pounds. We didn't want her to lose weight. So they clipped it for us. They clipped her lip and tongue tie and her lip was severe, very severe. Her tongue was as well, but her lip was really causing the issue. So she clipped it and uh, it was about a week later. We know. Because you have to, you have to massage it. You have to actually do therapy after they do it. To, you have to stretch it out so it doesn't grow back because it can grow back. And it was about a week later we noticed that she was getting a lot better. Now with Arabella, this exact same issue. So once again, we were discharged in 28 hours. We specifically told them to ask them to look for a lip and a tongue tie. And come to find out my wife and even her brother, they both have a lip and a tongue tie still to this day. So they said, oh no, she looks good. I don't know if they were probably just trying to get us out the door because of COVID. I'm assuming that's what it was. But three days later, she lost 18% of her body weight. And uh, the next day, my wife took her in. We could only, she could only take her one person at a time. One parent could go in, in with her, took her and she and Arabella actually had what's known as cheek buckles. So she had a severe lip tie, a severe tongue tie, and cheek buckles, which look like a Batman symbol in the back of her cheeks, which which affects her being able to suck. Uh, they clipped them, did a bang up job, and uh, she she got better after that. Yes, but she still she was still never able to latch with Ashley. So in in essence, I fed her. Ashley would pump, and I fed her. Were they able to take care of that at the pediatrician's office or did you have to go back to a dentist again? Yes, a dentist, uh, a specialty dentist uh, does that. And luckily my wife is the one that found the specialty, the specialist. And then actually Arabella's uh, grew back. Oh, wow. Yeah, hers grew back. So did y'all have to back again? Yeah, they had, she had to clip them again. Arabella had a lot of other issues too um, with acid reflux. The first four or five months of, of Bella's life were a challenge of its own. Very, uh, she did not stop crying. She was constantly in pain from acid reflux. Uh, Graceland had that issue as well, but she, by that time she could handle pain like a champ and still does. Shots don't bother her. Nothing bothers Graceland as far as pain is concerned. Uh, it's, it, it amazes me. But Bella, on the other hand, since she's not a micropremie and didn't go through anything like what Grayson went through, I mean, you know, she's a hurt little baby. Definitely been yeah. a challenge. And again, with COVID, it just makes it 10 times worse because once again, you can't have help. You can't, you're, can't really go to the doctor. You feel, I felt guilty for taking my baby to the doctor because I didn't want to 
get something and pass it to Graceland. How did your therapies change as a result of COVID? Curious if you can talk about how therapy sessions as far as were they in person still? Were they over Zoom? Were they um, kind of talk a little bit about that just so that we can kind of have a picture of, of the transition of therapy over Zoom or over COVID season? From the beginning of COVID, uh, I didn't see my therapist at all. And part of the reason was because I just didn't have time. I mean, you know, when you're trying to child rear and also have a have a, almost six, a five-year-old at the time and then trying to juggle your job all from home i like to i like to say that we're not working from home we're living at work so i didn't see my therapist until august so it had been several months and then they transitioned to zoom and then i've seen him probably at least once a month since then I, in my opinion it hasn't been as effective it seems like i'm i'm trying to figure out myself by myself with all that's happened in the past six years than relying on him, on him because it's just not as personal. I mean, that makes sense. When there's just a, when there's a computer screen between everybody, it's like, all right, the, the personal touch has been, has gone away. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the mental health uh, struggles come from is that, that lack of personal connection and the lack of, you know, you can't be your own person with your friends or it's definitely been very challenging on my marriage just because we have a newborn and yet we're just on top, all four of us are just on top of each other 24 hours a day. Yeah. And we don't have that time to, you know, go and do what we per we personally like to do. I want to go back to the gym. You know, that's it. Uh, I'll get there. It's just, there's just a lot of things to do here. Yeah. So I let her have her time and she, she's on Zoom all day long, every day. I work at night. Mine's, my job's not near as demanding, like, and time and the timing of it, it, that's just, that's how it works. It sucks. Yeah. But it's all, it has been an, a huge challenge. Um, you shared with us that you had, it was four babies that you guys have, have lost in the last mm -hmm. several years since Graceland was born. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can kind of bring a dad's, I guess, perspective, your perspective to what that was like watching your wife, you know, conceive and then get excited about the newborn and, and the life that y'all were about to live and then have those moments of, of just pure loss with each other. Um, can you just describe a little bit about what was going through your mind and, and your brain and, and how you were going to fix that piece of it all? Graceland's NICU stay, you, you get a sense of loss for everything. Once again, that the things that you thought that you were going to do, the things that you had planned for your new baby, our first baby, and that's a, that's a huge sense of loss because we didn't get to do it. And then the first one, the first baby that we lost, it, it was so early. It was, yes, it was awful. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever get over those, but it was awful. And it was a, a time of grief. And then you thought, well, okay, maybe it was just a fluke. Maybe it was just a fluke. You know, when you see, when you see your baby just weighing less than two pounds, you know, you see that it takes a lot of God to make a baby, A. And B, it takes a lot of God to save your baby. And so that's where I was like, maybe it was just a fluke. I'm not a, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, me. <laughs> so, you know, then, then we lost twins, twin boys a few months later. And that was the, that was the heartbreaker. That really, it just broke my heart to pieces. Uh, 
and it was around, it was in April when we lost him. And uh, then it, it just, it all gets brought up again, the NICU and the, and the lack of control and, you know, everything else. Uh, and then the last one, the, the girl that we lost in December, that December, I, I was just, I was over it. I really didn't want, Ashley really wanted another baby. And I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to try. I, I was just so heartbroken. And it really wasn't about trying to fix it. I just, I was just, I was just tired of the loss and the disappointment and the heartache. So I'm glad that we did do fertility treatment because uh, now we have Bella. Uh, but it, it really, <clears throat> from a dad, it just really devastates, devastated me. And I don't know if other dads just kind of look past it or throw it and toss it under the rug or whatever, but it really, it really changed me. So that's all I can say about that. Yeah. Oh, wow. That, that's powerful. I think that's a powerful statement. I thank you for sharing that because. Uh -huh. uh, and it can eat you alive. Yeah. It's why I see a therapist still. What would you say to men who say, I don't need a therapist. Yes, I'm sad. Or yes, I need to process this or I'll do it on my own time. And um, what would you say to the other dads and the other men out there that to, to just encourage that piece of it, maybe how it's helped you some. It has, it has helped a, a tremendous amount simply because yes, we think that we can get through it ourselves. And I'm, I'm a male, I'm a dad. I, totally think that way as well however these this is why these people have jobs because they're they're damn good at it and they give you a perspective that in a million years you would never think of and you're like and you once you get that aha moment then you're like okay wow that's pretty incredible that this person doesn't even know me and yet they're telling me these things that are that I can identify with. So for me, it, it has helped me to have a male therapist because I try to help out males. I try to help out dads. I'm a, I'm a peer mentor for NICU dads. I'm the board president of Oklahoma Family Network. So, I mean, I that's where my heart lies. If I can just reach one dad, then I know that I've done a pretty good job. So I would just say, try to find somebody that you like because that matters a lot. Because I have had therapists that I'm just like, man, I just didn't like them. I couldn't relate to them. And B, find a therapist that you can relate to that is identifiable to you. Meaning that, again, they may give you a perspective that you would have never thought of. So definitely, if you're feeling down and out and that the world is crushing you and maybe you, you feel like you want to run away and not, you know, maybe it's you feel you'd be best if you weren't here, you know, things of that nature, go seek help because your kids want you around and you, you need to be around for yourself as well and have that mental strength to be a dad. So get help. <laughs> and there's a lot of strength needed for dads. That's for sure. So, yes. So yes. You mentioned about NICU mentorship and being a dad who mentors other NICU dads. 
And uh, I know you do play a big role in making sure that some of the dads are taken care of. And I'm curious, did you have that in your life? Did you have a dad that was able to say, I, I was there too, and I, I want to be there? Or is it a situation where you want to be that because you didn't have that? It would, yes, I did not have that at all. It's taken me a long, and it's taken me a long time to even, you know, go back and visit where the NICU, where Graceland was for so long. So I did not have anybody, any male, from a male's pr perspective at all. And in fact, I really don't think that it has really become a thing until recently. You know, now I'm seeing NICU dad podcasts and Facebook groups and things of that nature. So this was strictly something that I knew needed to be out there that I could try to help with other dads with. I'm excited to extend this into um, something much bigger than, um, than what we ever, ever imagined, uh, being able to bring a dad's perspective and just, just a dad's um, encouragement in daily life. So yeah. I'm excited to see where this takes us and, and uh, this is going to be really, really good. So, oh my goodness, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey. Yeah. And, and this is going to be really impactful, I know, because I know there's a lot of dads that need to hear your words. And then I know that, that you said some very wonderful things for moms to be able to hear as well, uh, so that moms can process what dads are going through. So thank you very, very much for all of this. Yeah, no problem. I, I just, that's what I want to do. Thanks, Jeff. Cameron, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271-5072.